Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss Keir Starmer's speech and you ask us, should the restrictions in lockdown be tighter? So I'm back after a um, fun action filled break where I was mainly sitting in the kitchen, looking at recipes and occasionally motivating myself to cook them. But yeah, it's good to be back after what I know was a massively busy news week and it's not letting up. So we're just recording after Keir Starmer has made a speech about, well, about many things. Um, Alva, you've been following it. It's it's partly about what restrictions he thinks needs to be changed or toughened up during the current lockdown, but it's also a sort of laying out of his principles and priorities as well, isn't it? I'm glad that you similarly stumbled on trying to sum up in one phrase what it was about because I'm I'm about to, I'm about to finish writing my piece on it and that is the challenge not to say that it wasn't clear but basically this is the first of a series of much trailed speeches from Keir Starmer that he is planning on making in the new year to kind of bring his leadership into the next phase so if last year was just about introducing himself drawing a line under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership trying to say we're under new and competent leadership then this new phase is about putting flesh on the bones of that message this has always been trailed as Keir Starmer's attempt to sort of flesh out a vision for Labour under his direction so a vision for what a Labour government might do life under a Labour government post 2024 also some more policy announcements but also just to kind of develop some themes and and a tone to Labour going forward but that has obviously been complicated a bit by the very urgent unfolding crisis in the NHS and the discussion around the vaccine rollout and the really stark numbers of people dying from coronavirus. So you could kind of see in the speech that there was one speech probably written in December when they were anticipating that we'd still be living under restrictions and so on, but not really anticipating this kind of moment of crisis. So there was that bit of the speech um, talking more about family values and making certain criticisms of the government's economic policy, putting forward some policies of their own and sort of making the case that Labour is the party that the public should be looking to at the next election to rebuild Britain. But then there was this huge big bit sort of locked on at the top to talk about the vaccine rollout and the importance of pulling together just so that it spoke more to this moment. I think that probably their key messages will still get through, but it means that 
between trying to speak to the current moment and then all of the questions which were about what we'll be talking about probably for the next part of this podcast about compliance and the lockdown rules it means that probably the the central message that they were going for was maybe a little bit obscured I mean which would be a problem for an opposition party in normal times that you might be sort of overridden by events and what the government is up to but like especially so today so I've got this far without really even saying what anything that they announced but basically they framed it around protecting families incomes and protecting businesses so basically trying to introduce the big theme and the new tone that they were going for but anchoring it in the current crisis so really it was sort of calling for paid flexible furlough for parents and then under the guise of protecting family incomes there were lots of different policy calls so attacking the government's plans to increase council tax, attacking government waste, attacking the exclusion of so many people from various forms of government support, calling for a pay rise for key workers, all those sort of things. So basically, I think there'll be a lot of discourse about the family values stuff, which I think would be worth us discussing because it is really interesting. But actually, in a way, Just talking about the experiences of families, particularly at the moment in lockdown, families working from home, but also trying to look after their children who are home from school in most cases, and especially then parents who aren't working from home, who are facing a very difficult decision about whether to go out to work or look after their kids. Um, And then especially single parents who are facing that dilemma doubly so because they don't have a partner necessarily who can help um sort of anchoring their really this this discussion of families and their experiences was just a way of anchoring all of these different criticisms of the government's economic approach in people's real experiences I think that's that's really all that family stuff is doing and I think it worked in that it's probably much better to talk about the experiences of everyday people that you can relate to and then talk about the impact of increasing council tax rather than just talking about increasing council tax. Stephen, what did you make of the of Starmer's speech and particularly the, the family values discourse that we've been seeing a lot of? So I asked, the thing I thought was interesting about it is it's quite a classic opposition speech, right, in the Labour are hugely trusted on family, right? The scale of the lead depends on the pollsters, but they have a reliable, large lead on who is more trusted on, like, looking after families. And, you know, if you think about, like, the last 40 years of British history, right, there's a pretty obvious reason for that in the... And ironically, and this is why, okay, like so much of this carping at Keir Starmer is is very obviously bad faith, but the reason why it's precisely wrong when people go, oh, that word family is a right-wing dog whistle. It's just like, guys, you've misunderstood what the whistle in this speech is, right? The reason why Labour is more trusted on families is bluntly, Labour has a much better record on the term family, including, you know, families like my own, where obviously I, I don't have, you know... Well, I do have a mum and dad in a biological sense, you know, in a more profound and important sense, I don't. Labour's, you know, record of being far ahead, both in terms of, you know, 
economic support, social support, legal support. And although the Conservatives have in recent years, particularly under David Cameron, made both rhetorical and policy shifts in that direction, one, the fact that they are now led by someone who, you know, in the 90s was writing about how single parents raised, you know, ill-mannered children. I mean, like, this is Keir going, hey, that thing that you trust the Conservatives more on, i.e. council tax, that thing that has been politically painful for the Labour Party in the past, i.e being more generous on welfare, that's actually an issue of something that you trust us on, i.e. looking after families. Now, the thing I guess I'm slightly cynical about about this speech is I don't think it it is actually like a big speech about his thinking because, okay, yeah, as Alva lays out very well, there are loads of other news reasons why the leader of the opposition making a speech is going to be subsumed into COVID, right? Keir Starmer knows that full well, right? Like, there is a reason why every leader of the opposition since the beginning of time has given their speeches at two times, right? Non-sitting Thursdays, non-sitting Fridays, and the Easter recess, which is then there isn't very much competing news to go, right? If you want your big speech to, like, be discussed and be the subject of, like, 401 different think pieces, you do it at a time when you know you are unlikely to be competing with anything. And obviously, sometimes you can be, you know, highly unlucky and then a small war breaks out somewhere or it turns out then like, you know, prime minister has, you know, done something scandalous and it completely like knocks off your speech off the, the news. But but broadly, it's not like they were sitting there in the leader of the opposition office and went, hmm, maybe if we don't give this speech this week, then like people will stop being in families in three months time. The express purpose of this speech I think, is actually about going, okay, so at some point there's going to be local elections and our dividing lines on that are council tax. I think it's highly unlikely that the elections will take place in May and they'll instead be delayed to you know, June, July, August, September. But they'll be delayed to some point. But it feels to me that the two announcements and matter in this speech are the council tax one, which is obviously all-purpose local elections message, doesn't matter when they're held, and the don't end the plat the universal credit increase as planned in April, which I mean, it's, as well as it being really important, right? It's for obvious reasons of timing, a point when the government currently plans to take away money from people who really can't afford to spare it, literally a month before everyone in the country votes in some form of local election. And I think that's what this speech is actually about, with with family being the like protective pro labour bomb. Because in many ways, it's a bit like when David Cameron would go, you can't protect the NHS, an issue I feel very nervous and vulnerable on, unless you have a strong economy, an issue on which my party is trusted. And I guess that was, was my read of, of the speech, because outside of a hyper-engaged minority of people, nobody thinks that like, talking about family is counterintuitive for the Labour Party. Jeremy Corbyn was more trusted on family than, I mean, I'm saying more trusted than Boris Johnson, obviously, invites the obvious world. Who would, yeah, like Jeremy Corbyn was more, would have been more trusted than a generic Conservative leader on issues of family. Ed Miliband, more trusted than David Cameron on issues, issues of family. I'm not saying that it's not like the right political call. It's, you know, identical to Jeremy Corbyn talking about police cuts, which an issue on which he could have been weak on through the prism of austerity, an issue on which he was strong on, or David Cameron and the NHS and economy. It's it's a classic political attack. And the reason why everyone does it is that, you know, although the other side can do things to negate it, like it works. But I guess that was kind of my 
I don't think this was like ever intended to be a big speech. I think it's like it's like two attack lines like smuggled into a oh here are my thoughts on family. That's so interesting. Like we thought it was a speech about family, but really it's a speech about council tax. <laughs> I love that kind of subterfuge. <laughs> That's what I try and do in my pieces. Like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> you thought you were going to read something interesting, but this is actually about council funding models. <laughs> Would Keir Starmer have got like a glowing write-up from the Telegraph for going, hey, 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 everybody, I would like you to hear my two my two attack lines one attack line for the run-up to when the local elections will be regardless, and one for the run-up to when they probably would be in normal times. No, I mean, that's a nib. Whereas if you're like, oh, I'm going to talk about how, like, family is important, and then he has that bit where he essentially is introducing himself again to reiterate, and I, this continually blows my mind, which is one of the reasons why I keep saying it, so I remember it's still true. Like, that bit where he kind of goes, like, you know, I was born a small child in Memphis <laughs> to a family which that stuff is actually really important because like most people don't know that he was born a small child in Memphis. <laughs> yeah. On that theme, I also thought that the bit where he talks about the importance of family before he rolls out the the policies themselves was incredibly funny. I mean, I don't think it was meant to be that way, but really he basically just says that he's glad he has a family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's like really all it is. I'm glad I have a family and I'm glad the NHS helps my mum. And it just yes. like so uninspiring as part of this grand vision for family which I and I suppose like that's all you can really say about the importance of family to you that you're glad you have your family but I I just thought that it was a, a funny moment in it because it was it was a series of statements where you're just like I mean you'd hope wouldn't you <laughs> like well yeah and in terms of the so it's interesting that sort of it's framed or briefed as a sort of speech about his views on family or how that's going to be one of his political priorities. So we know how he wants to frame things. And that's interesting in itself. But also the policies that he was actually speaking about away from the immediate lockdown stuff, I think are quite clever things to focus on. So the, 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 those tax, the council tax rises, like you say, Stephen, well, the timing would have been the timing would have been quite clever if the local elections were going ahead when they were supposed to in May. But we're not sure whether whether or not they will. But still, you know, when people are pe- people are going to be struggling for for a lot longer beyond May uh, in terms of their sort of household finances. So I think that's always going to be a popular policy to try and move the government on. And then, of course, the extension of the universal credit uplift of twenty pounds a week that's a very clever thing to to campaign on as well first of all it's really important for people and it would be devastating if they did decide not to continue it in april but also you can just see that it's going to this campaign is going to get more and more momentum i think it was it's one of the things that marcus rashford is focusing on now beyond his free school meals campaign so that's not going to go away and there's a lot of conservative Voices who also think that it's going to have to be extended because of the number and and scope of of people who are newly on on and relying on universal credit now because of the pandemic. And then also the extension of the eviction ban. We already know that the government has U-turned on that before. So, you know, all of these look like wins for Keir Starmer. So it's a good thing to make sure that he's got clips of calling for before they actually happen and the government inevitably caves on at least one of the three. I think you, you've also precisely identified something I hadn't really thought about until I heard you say it, which is that ultimately, if the government does U-turn on the universal credit cut, which I personally think it will, because I just can't, I cannot conceive of a 
political situation in which it wouldn't be too painful to to go ahead with the cut at this point, even allowing all of the economic reasons why it's a bad idea to do it, yeah, as well as the social damage, then the the people who will actually force a U-turn are extra-parliamentary activity the kind Marcus Rashford is doing and intra-conservative activity of the kind people like Robert Halfon will be doing. Those are the people who will drive drive any actual U-turn. And if you are the leader of the opposition, right, you have this slightly weird insidious thing where your interests are best served by a bunch of people who really can't afford this money to be cut, having it cut. But your second best issue is to be able to glide in after the fact and go, you know, my work here is done. And having the announcement here at this speech at the start of the year means that you can hopefully do that in a slightly more graceful way than last time where, okay, yes, they had made the, they did have this vote coming in, in, in the Commons, which was the source of anxiety because the Whips knew that there would be a big Tory rebellion. And they had mentioned it in, you know, a Westminster Hall debate, but they hadn't had the kind of big central thing of being able to look look, there's our guy on TV having called for it however many months ago. I think actually there has been quite an interesting increase in the um, the kind of streetwiseness of the leader's office setup in the last sort of week or so, actually probably shorter a period of time than that. But it'll be interesting to see if that is a kind of permanent increase or if just, you know, they've had like quite a good 48 hours in terms of execution. It's interesting because it clearly has done the job in terms of rolling the pitch for local elections and announcing those policies and as you've both described like paving the way for Keir Starmer looking right on any sort of eventual government U-turn on the universal credit uplift but given the way we were talking about the way these things are inevitably overshadowed by the policy going on I just sort of wonder if even if that bit was maybe better executed and showed a bit more like street savvy than we might have expected. I think the thing that just really struck me was how much of it was about coronavirus policy and the fact that the way they were taking questions from the press afterwards brought it completely back onto coronavirus terrain. And I didn't think that Keir Starmer seemed brilliantly prepared for that. And so having used very successfully the idea of family as a framing device for what we all agree was actually a much less sexy speech about council tax. I felt like that whole framing of the family just fell away when people were actually trying to pin him down on what he would do about new coronavirus restrictions. And he ended up sort of saying about how it didn't seem to make sense that nurseries were still open when primaries are closed, which is totally true. But he didn't maintain the the framing of the family and having called for paid flexible furlough for families, I felt like it was almost as though he'd forgotten he had just said that. That was clearly the point to bring that back up again and to say there's clearly a case to be made for nurseries also being shut. But we're so aware of the strain that this is putting on families and we need to see flexible furlough brought in to support parents now. He sort of didn't. And I think it will depend a bit on how it's reported by various places, because there was so much meat in the speech in terms of policy. But I think that like from some of the coverage I saw on Twitter, the top line really was Keir Starmer thinks that there should be tougher restrictions, probably including 
closing nurseries and making sure that people can't move house at the moment or like do house viewings and I just thought that it was revealing because the whole thing was a quite interesting exercise in how you frame one thing in terms of another and I just thought he sort of dropped the ball a little bit in learning lessons from the thing he had just done and probably the main lesson that people who are just sort of passively taking in the news for a couple of minutes today probably the main lesson they'll get from this after all the the effort that has gone into it the main the main message will be Keir Starmer wants tougher restrictions but like actually isn't too clear on what I thought it was strange that he didn't link the flexible furlough proposal that he's making to to the the situation that people would be in if the nurseries closed as he seemed to be calling for I thought it was really strange that he didn't make that link it what that I think that kind of exposed the fact that he was making a number of different speeches in a very packed sort of news context I think you're exactly right about about that um lacuna in the speech and it it, it speaks to a a really interesting gap in his thinking which manifests itself as a gap in his office which is who is Keir Starmer's coronavirus advisor, right? Like he has, you know, a trade union liaison. I mean, I think they're called the stakeholder management, but you know, he has, a, that's what the actual job is, right? He has, you know, a person whose job it is to be like, hey boss, the MPs are feeling grumpy. He has an economics team. He has, you know, a policy person. He has, you know, a chief strategist. He has a director of communications. But he does not have a person whose who's job is to go, well, look, my feeling is the thing you can do about viral risk here is X. The reason for that is the the Labour Party's strategy on coronavirus is basically to go, we don't want to get tagged with doing politics as normal during a pandemic. We want to kind of position ourselves as being like, oh, look how constructive we are. Did we notice, did you mention that he's incompetent? Like that, <laughs> that's essentially their vibe, right? But it means that on issues like that, and I didn't spot the fact that he ought to have done that until you said it, Albert, but on issues like this, right, there's no one who goes and the Labour leader himself doesn't do it who goes, oh, right, okay, so the way that our five-year argument links to our year one argument of let's just introduce ourselves well despite the circumstances of this pandemic, there's no one who links those two worlds. It's so interesting that you can see that sort of personnel gap in what Alva picked up on as an awkward moment in the speech or the delivery of what he was trying to say. Also, maybe just a, a more fundamental briefing problem or a slight failure to appreciate the the media landscape today that he could have given a speech on literally anything and the questions would have been do you think there's enough public compliance should we have tougher restrictions what would they be how would they how would they reduce the spread of the virus I don't think that should have come as as much of a surprise as it seemed to and I think it should have been clearer that just telling people that the stay at home message is really important wouldn't cut it if you have about five or six questions from journalists. Like it's fine in answer to the first question, but when it's picked up again, you can't repeat the answer. Yeah, I just thought that that was quite striking. That And it was also a, a little bit of a problem in the interview that Keir Starmer gave to Andrew Marr yesterday that people are asking him exactly what he would be doing in terms of a coronavirus response and the immediate challenges that we're facing today. And every single time he does, it's a little bit uncomfortable, I think. 
If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask, you ask Us. So the question for today's episode is, should there be stricter lockdown restrictions? Stephen, you wrote about this in, in Morning Call this morning, didn't you? What's really happening underneath the sort of edifice of this argument of whether or not we need tougher restrictions? I think the the central reason why we're once again having this conversation is that the government has, has done all of the easy closures, right? All of the ones where you can you can broadly point to a category and go, all of you need to be shut. And it's done all of the ones where it wouldn't have to expand the generosity of its economic support, either to that sector in particular or as a result to that sector in general. And what is left is, for example, right, to take construction, right, where where that can continue, including ones where you, you cannot in practice socially distance or you know, just for a variety of reasons where, you know, it increases the number of people on public transport, et cetera, et cetera. If you stop construction for a certain amount of time, quite a few contracts basically then go, that's void, you owe me X amount. Now, of course, what would happen in practice is if you are a business, you could take the government to court going, look, this is unreasonable, you have to pay this. Now, there is no reason why the state shouldn't use its extraordinary lending capacity to do this. And there are many reasons, I would argue economically, why we should be much less concerned at the present time about government debt and a lot more concerned than the government is about the amount of household debt it has both made directly available to businesses but also the amount that businesses have taken on without quite quite meaning to and indeed the amount that ordinary households have taken on but i think basically the problem is is that all of the other shutdowns right because you end up in a situation where you go like okay we know it's not fair to say that all of these small kitchenware shops which were closed in march but have now pivoted to click and collect they all have to close and they have to use the regular post and, you know, like they have to do a bunch because at that point, right, there's no difference, right, between I think we all accept that people still need to be able to buy, you know, plugs and essential electronics or whatever during lockdown. And there is no difference between saying, sorry, your local nice health food shop. I'm not saying anything mean about Holden and Barrett, but yeah, your small independent health food shop that has to shut for now. But you can continue to get like weightlifting supplements via Holland and Barrett. If you do that kind of thing, you have to subsidise people for their, not just to their operational costs, but through through their loss of trade. It becomes a huge increase in the amount you have to spend. And then the second you do that, then people will start going, wait a second, the support you're providing for pubs and restaurants is for their staff and their rent costs, which is why so many of them are going to the wall. And what about supply chains? And, and basically all of the people that the, the Treasury has been trying to say no to since 
about May when Rishi Sunak looked around and went, wait a second, my officials have got me on the hook to provide what? Wait, whoa, we, we can't be doing this kind of nonsense. And I think essentially this deep-seated, I think, desire to believe that the coronavirus is spread through people being sinful, which maybe I'm wrong. And I, I'd actually be really interested to know what your impression of this is, Anoush, because obviously you also live, um, you know, in, in a block of flats in, in, around, you know, in a state in London. I just do not recognise this description that there is any more law-breaking than there was in the first lockdown. There are more people going to work that I can see on that on my high street. But I mean, I, I can see not just the estate, but the streets. And, and bluntly, that fact has never been a, a barrier to me witnessing law breaking before. Um, and I just doubt, I just don't believe this idea that the problem is illegal activity rather than legal economic activity. Yeah, same. I mean, that's that's been my impression of, of the places around where I live. I didn't notice very much rule breaking the first time round, and I haven't noticed very much this time round. And it's the same sort of issues, isn't it? I remember we were talking more about sort of pictures apparently exposing people for breaking the rules in parks and things because it was hotter and, and it was it was good weather last time round and, and there were lots of photographers about sort of taking particularly sort of manipulative photos of people at certain angles to make it look like they were somehow breaking the rules. And we were talking about that aspect of it and these photos that that sort of go viral. And we've had similar things this time round of people sort of being furious that there are people on public transport or people who are going on the walks that they're allowed to go on. And of course, there was the famous story now of those two women in Derbyshire who were stopped by the police because they'd driven for a walk five miles away from from where they lived and had separate peppermint teas from Starbucks let's not get back on on the subject of buying tea from from cafes but that was deemed to be a picnic and then sort of you have people like Matt Hancock defending the police's decision to to find them and actually we all know that if you look at the actual letter of the law they were completely within their rights and again you have that problem that we had last time round when we were talking about it for example the gap last time between guidance and the law was that you're only allowed to go out for exercise once a day rule. Obviously, that was never actually the law. And this time round, just because they're not saying that, people think that the restrictions are somehow more lenient. Actually, there's still that same gap between rhetoric and what the government guidance is and what, what the police can actually enforce and what you'd actually be doing to break the law. So there's that gap still. I don't understand why there's that gap. You know, it caused problems the first time round, which which cause degradation of public trust in both the government and the police and also the messages that they're being told every day and that they're reading. And also it's really difficult for police and, and other public officials who have a stake in trying to enforce the lockdown rules and trying to encourage people to to follow both the, the spirit and the letter of the law. So it seems like the government hasn't really learned from the mistakes from the first time round. And to cover the fact that it's not sort of been particularly sophisticated in, in developing its lockdown model and its lockdown communication model, it is doing what it did last time round, which is trying to place the blame on people and people's actions. I think Matt Hancock said any flex of the, the rules could cause deaths or something like that, you know, and it really is placing the responsibility on people's shoulders. Of course, we have personal responsibility, but like you say, Stephen, the, the fact that the virus is spreading at the rate that it is and that hospitals are as full as they are, is not because of some people taking the, uh, you know, the exercise rule too far. Yeah, I think that it's probably worth being really, really clear that the, the horribly, horrifyingly high numbers of deaths that we're seeing at the moment and the very, very high 
rates of people in hospital and the struggles that the NHS is having at the moment and the really high case rates are basically nothing to do with the behavior that we can observe right now. Like given the lag in the data, like the, the incubation period of the virus and then the time after that before people tend to, to be admitted into hospital and then a bit of a lag after that with, with death, sadly, there's really no connection. Like the, the numbers that we're seeing at the moment are the product of behavior weeks ago. And I think this question about compliance is a really separate one because what were the rules two or three weeks ago? Well, you know, we were looking at the Christmas bubbles and the, all the chaos around that where people were told at the last minute in some cases that Christmas was cancelled if you were in tier four or in Wales and then in other places like in Northern Ireland or in other parts of England or in Scotland you still kind of could do your Christmas meetups but you were told not to and not to take that too far and cases were already very high and the new variant had been identified and we are seeing like the crisis at the moment is the product of that period when like the behavior that people were doing was in most cases legal and even if it wasn't it was you know directly after a huge very sharp government u-turn which you know caught people at such late notice that many people went through with their plans anyway so I, I just think that the government is slightly indulging this very easy logical fallacy where you look at the crisis in hospitals right now and you look at behavior on the streets right now and you try to make some sort of connection when there isn't really one. And so there probably is a separate discussion to be had about whether the rules this time are tough enough because of the, the spread of the new variant. And, I, and as I think you've both outlined very well, the way the rules are different now compared to March, that more, more businesses are open, even in terms of simple things like the way in the first lockdown, there were no support bubbles, the way you couldn't exercise with someone who wasn't in your own household, and now you can. And I think definitely in terms of support bubbles, that's a really important one. But like lots and lots of things are different. And maybe if it turns out this new variant isn't being contained well enough by the rules at the moment, then there's another conversation to be had about that. But I just think that it lets policymakers off the hook slightly if they allow people to conflate the behavior that they see with the crisis that they're observing when they're kind of different. I don't think that we as a publication, for example, could have been any clearer that the Christmas rules were a terrible idea. And like that the past few weeks have been like observing a slow motion car crash with very, very, like very, very sad consequences. But I just find it amazing that we're able to have this concerned conversation about compliance and it's clearly in very good faith from people like um, the chief medical officer of England Chris Whitty I don't feel like he's doing it with any sort of political goal in mind he's just trying to ensure good compliance but I think the way that they're able to conflate current behavior with the consequences of past behavior which in most cases was totally legal is really very frustrating and I would love to see that being challenged more widely when we hear headlines about concerns over compliance. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me Anoush Shekelian and my colleagues Stephen Bush and Alva Ray. You can find me on Twitter 
at Anoush underscore C. And I'm at pronounced Alva, A-L-V-A. And I'm at Stephen KB. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall-Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out, why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search disorder wherever you get your podcasts.